It is good to be here with you guys. Um, let me open us up in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy and your kindness. Uh, thank you for this opportunity to learn more about you and about your, the great salvation that we have been granted in Christ Jesus. Um, Lord, I pray that uh, you'd be honored with our diligence. In Christ's name, amen. Well, let me do a quick introduction and then we'll get into uh, the topic at hand. Uh, my name is Brad Hargis. I am a pastor in Emporia, Kansas, and have um, um, I have uh, my wife and I met in college. Johnny is her name. Uh, here at Baptist Bible College and graduate school, we spent uh, several years here at Sunrise, actually, um, just kind of learning and growing. And we've been in Emporia now for about 10 years. I've been the uh, pastor there for about five. Um, have three daughters, 13, 11, and almost seven. So we are uh, blessed beyond measure for all that the Lord has done. And I'm really thankful to be here with you um, talking about this particular topic um, on justification and sanctification. Uh, and so really excited to get into this on the theology track uh, and talk through some of these uh, particulars. Um, this, uh, as you know, uh, is covering the uh, couple of theology questions that uh, are on the exam. Um, questions 15 and 16, I believe. Um, is there on your notes? Uh, provide an explanation and biblical defense of justification. Um, we are going to be spending a lot of our time there. Some of the sanctification um, conversation will be in a different one. Um, another one that, that you guys will, will have. Um, so we're going to focus most of our time on justification uh, today. And then theology question number 16 is define faith in biblical terms. We'll touch on that as well. Uh, and explaining the relationship of faith to justification and to sanctification. Okay, so we'll hit... Uh, again, most of that in the justification sense and defining faith and explaining its relation to justification. Most of your sanctification conversation, though, will be in another class um, that will be will, that you guys will take. Okay, so let's start off with uh, a definition. What is justification? Um, on a technical level, we can say that justification is a legal declaration by God grounded in the work of Christ. And we are going to spend a lot of time talking about that legal side uh, because that's what justification deals with, is the legal declaration by God where he declares us to be righteous in his sight. And that uh, justification is grounded in the work of Christ. Okay. Um, in justification, God uh, is acting as judge. Okay, there, there's a judge, uh, a judgment being rendered about the individual in justification, uh, and so the, the Bible will we'll talk about God in, in, in you know in settings like God is Father, right? God is um, uh, as uh, judge in this case. Th this is the instance where uh, really we're in a courtroom, so to speak. 
okay, on justification. That's where our conversation will revolve around because that's a lot of the idea when the Bible talks about being justified. That's what it's, uh, that's what it's referring to, is that legality aspect of justification. Justification has to do with actually declaring our sins to be forgiven, a declaration. That's why we, in our definition, we've called that a declaration. Um, it speaks to this declaration made by the highest judge of the universe. Okay, The highest judge of the universe. Um, which is why Romans 8 would say, if God is for us, who can be against us? Right, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with us freely give all things? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, right? It's the highest judge in the universe. Um, you know, you think of being uh, declared, uh, in a sense, um, you could say declared not guilty by a Supreme Court judge that carries a lot of weight and authority. Supreme Court judge declaring you not guilty is going to carry a greater weight of, of authority than a uh, than a uh, a circuit judge, right? Somebody in the state level or something like that. And this, when we're talking about the Declaration of Justification, it comes from the highest judge of the universe, uh, God Himself, that declares a person not guilty or forgiven of their sins. We'll put it that way. And it's a legal declaration in relationship to God's laws. God's laws, uh, where we are completely forgiven and no longer culpable or liable for further punishments. Okay. We're no longer culpable or liable to future punishment. I'll be honest with you. As I studied for this and just thought about this, we were, we're talking about a a lot of technical things on, on purpose today, but man, the kind of devotional aspect of this, I don't want to lose either. Right. In the reality that in justification, when God declares our sins are forgiven, that he doesn't hold us liable any longer for punishment. I mean, that's astonishing, really, isn't it? That's astounding, this act of justification that is done uh, for us by God as the highest judge of the universe. The justification is an instantaneous legal act of God. So it's not a process of justification. We don't talk about the process of justification. We talk about the act of justification. Um, when we talk about process, we talk about the process of sanctification. You hear that a lot in counseling, progressive sanctification. Um, there is a, a positional aspect of sanctification you'll talk about that's uh, instantaneous. But justification doesn't have a process tied to it, but it's an instantaneous legal act of God. Okay. Um, this is Wayne Grudem in a systematic theology that, that puts it this way. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God by which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. We'll talk about that exchange in a bit. And number two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. Declares us to be righteous in his sight. Which is an astonishing thing, because we're not righteous. We're unrighteous in his sight prior to justification. 
And that's the change. It goes from unrighteous to righteous. Instantaneous legal act of God. Okay? Justification is God's action pronouncing sinners righteous in his sight. We have been forgiven and declared to have fulfilled all that God's law requires of us. Declared to have fulfilled all that God's law requires of us. That's Millard Erickson and his systematic theology. Again, when you're looking at your test, right, and your exams that you're doing, these are some of the theological, um, the systematic theologies that will help you along those lines uh, in defining these things. Um, we have been, it has been declared to have fulfilled all that God's law requires of us, and that includes the penalty right, of God's law, because God's law we know requires a penalty uh, for it being broken. And so when we think of fulfilling all that God's law requires, we think also of the penalty that has been paid so that we are justified and forgiven of our sins. Um, Grudem uses Proverbs 17, 15 um, to talk about justification. And, and here's how he puts it. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Um, I don't know if that one's on this slide or not. No, it's not. Okay. So when he when he talks about that, here's here's what he um, tries to get at in this Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. What he points out in this passage is that it would not be an abomination if uh, justify meant to make someone good or righteous inside, okay? Because it wouldn't be an abomination if you justify the wicked by changing the inside, right? That, that's his point. In that case, that would be good, not bad, not an abomination. But justify in this text means to declare the wicked to be righteous. It's a declaration about what they're doing. Does that make sense? This the wicked person is righteous. Then you can see why it's an abomination. So he ties that into justification to say that the justification is the declaration of our sins being forgiven. Okay? It's the declaration from the outside that says something about our legal standing. Um, now, we are to be declared... To be, we are declared to be righteous by God, which does not suggest that we are instantly righteous in all of our conduct, okay? And that everything we do is instantly righteous. That's why the doctrine of progressive sanctification exists and is important, right? Because it doesn't mean that everything we're doing is instantly righteous by his declaration that our sins are forgiven— Rather, it's a legal declaration that doesn't in itself indicate a change in our character, okay? doesn't mean that, just to clarify, it doesn't mean that we don't um, begin to change in our character once we're justified. But when we're just talking about the doctrine of justification, it's speaking of this legal declaration that comes down from on high about us, okay? Uh, and doesn't say anything about a change in our character, there are parts of salvation that do say that, right? Um, 
And so why is it important to emphasize that the legal declaration in itself does not change our internal nature or character at all? Well, part of the reason is because that's what the doctrine of regeneration tells us. Regeneration is an act of God in us. Okay? So that's what we say. It's not that our that the internal part of us doesn't undergo a change, right? But when we're talking about justification, we're talking about the legal declaration more than the internal change, not the internal change. Regeneration is an act of God in us. This is again from Gruden. Justification is a judgment of God with respect to us. That's the distinction. And he says it this way, the distinction is like that of the distinction between the act of a surgeon and the act of a judge. The surgeon, when he removes an inward cancer, does something in us. That is not what a judge does. He gives a verdict regarding our judicial status so that if we are innocent, he declares us accordingly. Okay? That's why um, justification is the language of the legal system. The court of law. Now, what is our condition outside of Christ? Guilty, right? That's our condition outside of Christ. Guilt is a condition that we are in more than it is feelings that we have. It's a condition. We're guilty people. It's a reality, okay? And that's where we stand before the judge condemned in our unrighteous, sinful state. And the just punishment, the right punishment in that case, according to the scriptures and according to the breaking of God's law, is separation from God, eternal death. Uh, separation from God's uh, from God in eternal torment. But in justification, Jesus, who has taken our punishment, that's why we say it's uh, that sense of... Um, the law, the fulfillment of the requirements of the law, including the penalty of the law, Jesus who stood in our place and took our just punishment. Now, uh, on because of that, God pronounces us not guilty. Okay? He pronounces us not guilty. It's the legal declaration. And yet, that is not the only thing in justification. Because not only does God not pronounce us not guilty, he also declares us positively righteous. Okay? Because of Jesus Christ. That's justification. Here's the text uh, that helps us with that. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5.21. Actually, I've got a few texts. 1 Corinthians 5.21. But I, I love this text. I, I think it's kind of the... Um, I don't know. I wouldn't call it the whole gospel in a nutshell, but certainly a uh, a major piece of that in a nutshell. Second Corinthians five twenty one that says, "For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God." In Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Um, that's such a great text to, to consider and think about, um, to explain justification. Christ, who sinless, became sin for us for the reason that, for the purpose that 
you and I might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Some call that the great exchange. He took our sin, we get his righteousness. Thank you. Second Corinthians five twenty one. Thank you. Not first Corinthians five twenty one. Romans chapter four, verses two through six, um, also helps us in this regard. Romans chapter four, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scriptures say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Counted to him for righteousness, right? Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Okay, Um, Some theologians might call that an alien righteousness something that's outside of us, a righteousness not our own, imputed to us. Okay, Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Having been justified by faith, we have peace, the result of our justification. That peace, of course, is not an internal subjective peace like I feel peaceful. Right, that peace is a um, absence of hostility. There was hostility, and now, being justified, we are reconciled. It's that reconciliation with God component that we're talking about in Romans five, one there. Okay, so this is justification, legal language system. Um, it's the language of the legal system, a judgment of the court. We are justified by the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Imputation is, um, is, the, is a term that uh, we use, that the scriptures even use, to talk about how we receive this righteousness. Obviously, it would be scandalous, and, and I mean, it's scandalous in itself that, um, that sinners can be counted as righteous. That just doesn't, that that kind of math doesn't compute. Sinners be counted as righteous before God. Um, And really it would be scandalous and, and even unjust for God to simply count a sinner righteous without any um, righteousness imputed to the sinner. Okay. So, so justification happens. Why can God count a sinner righteous? The reason that God can count a sinner righteous is because the righteousness has the, the sinner has received the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's been imputed to him, put into his account, if you will, if you think of it in an economical sense, right? It's been placed into his account. It's been imputed to him. There's a lengthy passage in Romans chapter 5 that I want to read uh, to you um, in verses 12 through 21. 
Therefore, it says, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one. Much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that's a, it's a lengthy passage, but, but if you Paul, follow Paul's argument in this passage, he's talking about a couple of different kinds of imputation. Okay, You, you can say that Adam's sin was imputed to us because we're his descendants. You have to say that, right? You can see it. Um, in uh, in the text, by one man's offense, death reigned through that one. Therefore, he says, as through one man's offense, offense came judgment to all, resulting in condemnation. The scriptures are very clear that in Adam, uh, we are condemned. We share in that sinful nature, if you will, with Adam's sin imputed to us because we are his descendants. Okay? And that is that is part of the human condition. That's part of the human condition. And, and in fact, as the scriptures lay that out, everyone, everyone ever born, uh, is born into that particular condition with imputation of sin, um, Adam's sin to us. Right? So, uh, and it's it's because we're his descendants. So so the the scriptures would teach us essentially this: that we are sinners by nature and by choice. Right? We're sinners by nature and by choice, and that nature is something we've inherited from Adam. We've inherited from Adam. So Adam's sin is imputed to us because we are his descendants, and that's the natural condition of the person. That's the natural condition of every human being when they're born into the world. Okay, that condition, in order to be justified, has to change. Right, because again, that's why we say God does not declare someone righteous uh, simply who is in that condition. Okay, something has to be different for that person to be declared righteous, and that's where Christ's um, righteousness is imputed to us by faith. 
um, the righteousness that Christ has, okay, the righteousness that Christ has is given to sinners by faith. There's an imputation of that to us, which means this. God, um, God considers the righteousness of Christ as now belonging to us. So when he sees us, instead of our sin, which would bring condemnation, that's what Romans chapter 5 says, when we're in, here, in Adam, we receive condemnation. But because now we are covered in the righteousness of Christ, and he sees Christ's righteousness as ours, now uh, he can justify the ungodly, because the ungodly now have are dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Right, the opening picture on there was this robe being put on the person. Right, and that that can be kind of the idea: garments of righteousness that are placed upon someone. But it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ that are placed upon that person, which then uh, allows God to be Romans three says just and the justifier of the ungodly. Why? Because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is imputed to the sinner. Okay. So, so on the cross, on the cross, the sin that we have in Adam, you could say that Romans 5.21 exchange, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Our sin was imputed to Christ so that he took the penalty of our sin. Okay. He suffered the penalty of our sin, receiving that on his shoulders, placing that, receiving the wrath of God on himself. That's the propitiation terminology. Okay, receiving that on the cross and in exchange then by faith, we receive his righteousness. That's why theologians call that the great exchange, right? Our sin for his righteousness. Um, So that's the sense that happens in justification. That's why we can, as sinners, be declared righteous in God's sight, though we're not righteous. Okay? He can forgive our sins though we don't deserve to have our sins forgiven because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Christ's righteousness is the only thing that makes us acceptable in God's sight. Okay, When you think of um, our forgiveness of our sins, you could wipe somebody's slate clean. Okay, You could say, um, Brad, God could say, you are forgiven of your sin, wipe the slate clean, start over new. Okay? But that's not, in itself, in terms of getting rid of that, sufficient. Because now I'm back to zero sum. Right, I had a negative in my bank account, now I'm back to zero sum. What I also need is the righteousness of Christ imputed to me. Make sense? I actually have to be given the righteousness of Christ. Uh, otherwise, justification cannot happen. Okay? But when that happens, when Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, then we are justified, declared to be righteous by God. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Paul says this, And be found in him, and he's talking about his um, his desire. I'm probably going to back up just a sec, or just a touch there, and go back to the previous verse. Um Indeed, he says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, 
I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And here's our verse. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So you see, it's not Paul's righteousness, but a righteousness outside of himself. That's why the gospel uh, very clearly contradicts everything that our culture would teach us, where our culture you might teach us that the, the answer is always inside of you, and that if you have enough inside of you, you can make it happen. The gospel comes along and says, actually, what's inside of you is the problem. It's not the solution. The solution is something outside of you. The solution is in the righteousness of Jesus Christ that can be imputed to us so that we are justified in God's sight. And so Paul was not putting his confidence in his own righteousness and his obedience to the law, even though he says previously in chapter 3 that he did that. That's where his confidence was before. Now he's counted all that thing as loss, as rubbish. And now he's put everything into uh, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the trust in the righteousness that comes from God by faith. Okay? So that helps um, just even give a little bit more clarity, hopefully, to what justification is. a legal declaration uh, where Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Justification comes to us by grace alone. By grace alone. And guys, this, uh, I would venture to say, that probably up until now and up until the end of this lecture, most of this is not going to be like, whoa, I didn't know this, right? <laughs> By grace alone. Hopefully this is helping you, though, piece together some of these things as you think about your exams to be able to put these into some of these categories. And, and I'm, I'm telling you, I don't, I don't only want it to be academic because I, I want to rejoice with you about what Jesus has done in us and the justification that we have because it is truly by grace alone unmerited favor. Uh, isn't that what grace is? It comes to us by grace alone. Wayne Grudem, Systematic Theology, says, after Paul explains in Romans 1, 18 through 3, 20, that no one, no one, will ever be able to make himself righteous before God, which um, you go home and read Romans 1, 18 through 3, 20. Um, that's kind of one of those, I've not taught through the book of Romans yet, but I think the first three chapters might be a little depressing <laughs> if I preach through the book of Romans, because it's kind of like this over and over again. He's like, you're, you're not good enough. You're, you're not good enough. You're not good enough. You're not, you're not going to do it. You're, you're not going to be able to make it. You're not good enough. And he establishes it, but he establishes it so thoroughly that when he gets to the grace, you're just rejoicing, right? It's like, ah, okay. You're not good enough. You're not good enough, but Christ is. No human will, he says, being, no human will be justified in the sight of God by the works of the law. Then, Paul goes on to explain that since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which probably the majority of us have memorized at some point, it's part of the Romans road. Now, he says, they are justified by his grace as a gift, a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. God's grace, we know, is his unmerited favor because we are completely unable to earn favor with God. The only way, the only way that we are declared righteous in his sight 
is if God freely provides salvation for us by grace, totally apart from our work. We are justified by grace alone. Nothing we can do. It's kind of like the um, the hymn, as it uh, it says, "Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to Thy cross I cling." Right? This idea that you bring nothing to the table, no works of your own. What you bring to the table is the sin that needs to be forgiven, and what God brings is the righteousness of Jesus Christ by His grace. Romans chapter three. Um, verse 20 through 26, Therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, listen to this, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's not of yourself. It's the gift of God. What's the gift of God? Well, the whole package is the gift of God. Salvation by grace through faith. Titus 3, 7. You've been justified by his grace so that you can become heirs, heirs of Jesus Christ. Um, so we are saved by grace, justified by grace, not by works. Which, which means this, God, God has no obligation to justify the righteous, or to justify the unrighteous, excuse me. God has no obligation to justify the unrighteous. It's not his job to forgive, right? That's, that's not his obligation. It's not he, what he requires, or, or what is required of him, excuse me. But it's because of his grace. Grace alone, not grace plus Human efforts. Again, not earth-shattering by any stretch, but certainly a, a helpful thing to review and a helpful thing to think through. We are justified by grace alone through faith alone. These are some of the things that, by the way, the Reformers, you kind of hear some of this in, in uh, the Reformers' theology back in the 1500s, 1600s, some of those that kind of recaptured or um, um, resuscitated, if you will, the understanding of the gospel, the right understanding of the gospel, that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and it's often finished in Christ alone. Faith alone, in Christ alone. Why? Because Christ is the reason for justification. Faith is the instrument through which God's gift of grace is given. Faith itself has no merit as if it could accomplish something. So faith is not a work, in other words. right? Faith is not a work. It's not merit-based faith. In fact, 
Christ is the one who saves. It's the object of our faith that is important because Christ saves. That's why um, we often finish it. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's Christ who justifies. Not that the faith has a meritorious work. But Christ is to be received by faith so that God justifies um, those who receive him by faith. That's the next one. Christ is to be received by faith. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 is a helpful verse here in this. Um, in fact, there's several, but... Um, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God. That's just a clear proof text, right, for us that justification comes through faith alone. We have been justified by faith. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, I think this one's really important. Knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't get any clearer, right? Not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified just in case you missed it. Right? No no flesh shall be justified. Romans chapter 3, verse 24, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. We already read uh, some out of Romans chapter 3. When we said that, um, that God might be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. It goes on to say in verse 28, where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law of works? No, by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. So these are some proof texts to help you as you write your exam questions. These are texts that you want to reference. These are texts you want to go to um, and unpack because they'll be really beneficial for you as you're writing your your exam. All of Romans chapter 4 um, speaks of Abraham. That's the example given in Romans chapter 4, Abraham's faith that was counted to him as righteousness. And it makes the case that's before um, circumcision, before even the law was given, um, to make the case that it's not by works of the law because Abraham was justified even before the law of God and that was given, the law of Moses was given in circumcision. And that's the argument of Romans chapter 4 right? That this can't be by works of the law because Abraham was justified by faith prior to the works of the law, or prior to the law being given. It's Romans chapter 4. Okay? Um, I want to read to you a little bit of Wayne Grudem um, in uh, response to why did God choose faith as the means by which we receive justification. Here's what he says. It is apparently because faith is the one attitude of the heart that is the exact opposite of depending on ourselves. When we come to Christ in faith, we essentially say, I give up. I will not depend on myself or my own good works any longer. I know that I can never make myself righteous before God. Therefore, Jesus, I trust you and depend on you completely to give me a righteous standing before God. In this way, faith is the exact opposite of trusting in ourselves. And therefore, it is the attitude that perfectly fits salvation that depends not at all on our own merit, but entirely on God's free gift of grace. Paul explains this when he says, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, Romans 4.16. This is why the reformers from Martin Luther on were so firm in their assistance 
on justification comes not through faith plus some merit or good work on our part, but through only through faith alone. That's in Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology um, as well. So you can see the sense of faith that uh, he's explaining here and even its relationship to justification. So even as you think about your questions, that second question, what is the relationship of faith to justification? Really, this whole section uh, should help you answer that that part of the question. Um, how does faith relate to it? It's where we receive the righteousness of Christ and justified in by faith alone. And all those verses will help you uh, as well. Okay. What is then the relationship between justification and sanctification? Justification and sanctification. Justification is a legal declaration that we are not guilty by reason of the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account. I've got, I think, a note on that. Yep. God now sees us through the righteousness of his Son. By faith alone in Christ, justification is the legal declaration. That is uh, the distinction. And then you could say it this way, justification is the foundation for our sanctification. Justification is the foundation for our sanctification. Um, a man or a person who is not um, justified is not in the process of being sanctified. And a person that is justified is in the process of being sanctified. You don't have justification uh, without also sanctification. Right? Once thinks of Romans... Um, chapter 8, verse 30, that speaks of those who are called are justified, those who are justified, um, I think he says are um, are glorified. I can't remember all the, all the terms that he uses, but there's a chain that, that one is not true without the other. So everybody who is justified, and it's the foundation of it. Um, how in progressive sanctification, and, and you're going to talk about sanctification more later, but how in progressive sanctification can our works be acceptable in the sight of God? How is it that works from the believers or from the, the human standpoint, as Isaiah says, are like filthy rags before the Lord? How is it that a person's work can actually be acceptable before God only by being declared righteous in the sight of God? Okay. That's the grounds, the legal standing of our progressive sanctification. Okay, um, so it makes them, allows them to be acceptable. Okay, um, so that really, if you talk about that relationship between justification and sanctification, justification needs to be, uh, in some sense, um, understood uh, in a distinct sense from progressive sanctification. Okay, they're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. Progressive sanctification is a work that you and I must do. Okay. So, so God works in us, but we also work. Justification, we do not work. We receive by grace through faith. Okay, to to not make that distinction between progressive sanctification and justification um, creates an anti-gospel. Okay, so that's that's critical. But justification then becomes a grounds of our sanctification. Okay, the last thing we'll talk about um, uh, before we get to the implications is what is faith? We define faith in biblical terms. 
Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. I think that's the classic place to go. There's a reason that it's a classic place to go in this verse leading up to what uh, many call the Hall of Faith. Different characters in the Scripture that display faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's kind of a working definition of faith that the author provides to us. Um, Perhaps not a full theological definition, but certainly one that we could say a biblical definition, right? Um, The assurance of things hoped for, it's an absolute certainty. And certainly when, when we say that which is hoped for in the Scripture's understanding of a hope... Um, is that it is a confident expectation, right? A confident expectation, a certainty, um, not a wistful longing, not a wish, not a I hope this happens. Um, that would not be faith, um, but a a settled um, a reality, a settled certainty. Um, that is an assurance, a conviction a source of confidence um, that these things are true. So men and women all in the Old Testament, and that's what Hebrews 11 kind of unveils for us, they rested on the promises of God because God had told the people, Messiah is coming to take away sin, and one day that Messiah will rule and reign. And they rested on those promises that God had made. Um you know, even the even the sacrifices that they did, they had to do it by faith, resting in the promises of God, trusting that this was indeed true, and what He had said was true, and they their 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 faith was based on the revelation God had given them. Okay, um, so it's the substance of things for, hope for, the evidence of things, or the conviction of things not seen, the things, the invisible things, right. Um, uh, the things that make people think you're crazy to be a Christian because you follow a God whose face you've never seen and whose voice you've never audibly heard, right? But you follow it by faith. And you are so convinced that it's true that you base your life on it. I think that's the idea of faith, too. Um, It's um, in the invisible, the things not seen, um, this this statement is really a, a similar phrase. He just says the same thing twice in a different way both times uh, in this statement. Um, but it's not, faith is not just something that stays internal, but it's something that works its way to an external response, right? Um, how many of you heard the illustration of the chair on with faith? You guys heard that illustration where where I can say all day the chair will hold me up? Right, but if I don't sit in the chair, then you can question whether I actually have faith in the chair. Does that make sense? Uh, so it's it's an internal conviction, but it's not just internally saying, "Yeah, I think that's true," but it's it, it calls for an external response because I'm going to base my life upon that truth. That's faith, right? That's faith. So when you think of that in justification, you can think of that in terms of just. Uh, I believe this to be true, and I'm going to base my life on that truth. I'm going to base my life on what Christ has done. 
that this will indeed save me, which means kind of how I, I, I like to tell people is, listen, you're putting all your eggs in this basket. There's no like plan B if this doesn't work out. Like, well, what if this, it, I'm hedging my bets? You know, that's not faith in Christ. When you put your faith in Christ, it's like, okay, I'm all in here. Everything is going into this basket because this is where I know I know it to be true. And it's living life on the belief that that is true. I think there's a commitment element uh, within that, acknowledging God, Christ as our God, as our Lord, and as our Savior, putting all hope and trust in God and in Christ. That's the commitment of faith. So if we find faith in biblical terms, it is belief, yes, but it's a belief that is um, confident in the reality and the truth and trusts in what God has said enough to build your life upon it, okay? Um, so we've talked about faith in relationship to justification. We're justified by faith. Um, the relationship of faith to sanctification is what you'll cover uh, in another lecture, okay? Because faith doesn't just apply to justification. Faith has to apply to sanctification also. But you'll cover that in another lecture. What are some implications it's important enough to know these truths well enough to be able to teach them to our counselees in wording that makes sense to them. We've been pretty technical today, right? As you're going to be working through your theology exam, there's going to be some technical, but you're probably not going to use um, all the technical terms with your counselee as you're trying to help them understand justification. Okay? Right. Um, there's a myriad of ways that we could just tease this out for a long time in terms of some of the implications for counseling the justification would have um, and, and their their understanding of um, how they are uh, secure in Christ if they are in Christ, right? Their security that comes in justification that creates the platform for their sanctification. That would take probably a whole hour in itself just to tease out those implications. But as you're explaining that to them, you need to know the doctrine of justification well enough that you can explain it to them in non-theological terms in ways that they understand, right? Um, I don't think it's necessarily wrong or bad to teach them some theological terms, but the, the counseling office is not going to be a theological classroom, Right? You're helping them understand the implications of justification for them, and and perhaps even um, explaining to an unbeliever how to be justified in the sight of God, right? But you need to know the details of justification well enough that you can explain it to them in that in the terminology that they can understand, uh, so that they're not lost and they actually grasp what they're saying. It's been said that unless you understand it fully, you can't explain it. And if you can't explain it in ways that people understand, you don't understand it enough. Right? So, so you need to understand it that way. Um, these truths also should help us realize the importance of learning where our counselees are spiritually. Again, to mistake the doctrine of justification with the doctrine of progressive sanctification is um, a, about as... Um, high of stakes as you can get because it confuses the gospel. So we need to know where our counselees are at. Um, have they put faith in Christ? Do they understand faith, true faith? And maybe they have maybe they have faith, right? Maybe they have it and maybe they can't put it all into words. I'm not saying all of that necessarily. Um, but 
understanding if they have, or as best as we can tell, do they understand the basics? Do they have the indwelling spirit? Um, do they need to be saved? And maybe it turns into an evangelism as well. Um, opportunity for you.